Alright students, as you get your things out, we are going to have a lecture on the introduction to Oedipus King by Sophocles today. But beforehand, we're going to do a quick review of the introduction to Sophocles, Athenian drama, and uh, the so-called Athenian stage. And so first and foremost, I want to ask, what date was Sophocles born? What date? Yes. 496 BCE. Does anybody remember what BCE stands for? Ah, very good. Remember, B.C. means before Christ. B.C.E. means before common era. And so A.D., you may know, means... Does anybody know what A.D. means? It's, uh, it's not after death, like a lot of people think, uh, or after daylight. It's a Latin phrase. Does anybody know it? It is Anno Domini. It means the year of the Lord. The year of the Lord. So it's obviously very ecclesiastical language. So now that we live in a more secular age, we've come up with... Uh, similar phrases that mean that mean the same thing. Uh, so BCE means the same thing as BC, but it's before Common Era. It's the same dates as BC, and AD is the same as CE. If BCE is before Common Era, can you guess what CE is? Common Era. Very good. And you'll be learning that in your history classes as well. What date did Sophocles die? What year? It could have been one of two. One of two. Yes. Four or five or four or six, which meant he was about how old when he died? Yes. 90. 90. Which two wars did he see? One in which the Greeks were victorious and one in which the Athenians, he was an Athenian, remember uh, where he was born, very close to Athens, uh, where they lost. Who remembers the one that was won against the people that the Athenians would have called barbarous or barbaroi because they did not speak Greek? Anybody remember? We have the Persian War. Very good. But what was the name of the war that they lost under a very famous statesman named Pericles, yes? The Peloponnesian War. And does anybody recall the two uh, things that attacked, or the two forces that attacked the Athenians at one time? One was an external force, their great enemies. Who knows the great enemies of the Athenians? Their, one of their ancient kings was Menelaus. The Spartans, but also something internal, like very similar to what happened to Oedipus attack them, which is what? Or to Oedipus's people in Thebes, as well as Idomeneus's people in Crete. Yes? Who knows, who knows, who knows? There was a plague. There was a plague. Very good. Okay, what were the names of the other two tragedians that were famous Athenian playwrights? One who came slightly before Sophocles, one that came slightly after Sophocles. Euripides is the one who came after, and the other? Just give it a shot, and then I'll correct you. Aeschylus, or Aeschylus, as the Brits call him. Very good, very good, very good. Um, what is the name of the festival at which um, Sophocles would have presented his plays? Yes? Something to do with like the Dionysia, and there were two versions of the Dionysia. Who recalls what the two versions were? There was one that was yearly and one that was every four years. The city Dionysia was every year, and the great Dionysia was every four years. How many tragedies per tragedian would be produced and portrayed each year? In the back, in the back, in the back, in the back. Three tragedies, and what is the other sort of play that somebody would show at the end? Yes? 
No, 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 no. It's a very specific sort of play. Do you know? All right, we're going to have to study a lot harder, y'all, because you don't know most of these questions. Yes? A satyr play. And what is a satyr? Yes. Well, what is a satyr, not a satyr play? Oh, uh, hands, 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 hands. You are not unique in to the rules. Yes? A nature spirit that looks how? Donkey legs and donkey ears. Yes, okay, we're going to have to study quite a bit before this quiz, y'all. We are not ready. How many of Sophocles' plays still remain? Yes? Seven out of the 122. Seven out of the original 123. Can you tell me which three are the so-called Theban plays, one of which we are reading? Yes? Oedipus King. Oedipus King, which is what we're reading. Oedipus at Mumble Mumble, Oedipus at Oedipus Colonus. Colonus. Okay. And, um, Antigone. and Antigone. Very good, very good, very good. Um, which play chronologically comes first? Not which play was first written, but which play should you read first if you are going to read all three of these plays? This should be pretty obvious. Yes? Oedipus King, what we're reading, obviously. Very good. Very, very, very good. Okay, okay. Ah, yes. What was Sophocles' major innovation to the Greek stage? Yes? He added a third actor. He added a third actor. Which playwright from before his time actually ended up adding that innovation into his plays near the end of his career? Yes? Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, Aeschylus. Aeschylus or Aeschylus. Both of those are correct ways to say it. Not Aeschylus, though. That's not right. Aeschylus or Aeschylus. Those will both work. Um, yes? What is the name of the body of people that often explain events, both conscious and unconscious, that occupy differing roles on the Greek stage? Yes? The chorus. The chorus. What are the three movements of the chorus, which we talked about before lecture today? Yes? Oh. What are they? Strophe, antistrophe, and epistrophe. Strophe, antistrophe, and epode. Strophe, turn, antistrophe, counterturn, epode, come to the center present conclusions. Very good, very good. Okay, we're gaining some speed. Now I'm getting some hope. Now I'm getting some hope. Ah, yes, around how long was Sophocles' career is rather extensive, yes? 50 years, almost 50 years. And so uh, the fact that he had 123 uh, uh, plays over 50 years, observing two wars. Ah, yes, was he just a playwright or did he also uh, have several high public official positions? Yes. He had several high-profile positions. What was the most high-profile? He was one of ten of these in Athens. That a general translation would be he was essentially a general. Yes? Not the treasurer. Not the treasurer of Pericles. Yes? He was a strategos. Yes, very good. Uh, one of the ten strategoi, uh, the people who present strategy. Uh, very good, very good, very good. All right, do I want to ask anything else? Anything else? These are these have been some good questions so far. Hmm. You know about satyrs? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's get started. Good. That was good. We have room for improvement. It's a good thing we have a couple days until the quiz. We know what we need to study. If I ask these sorts of questions before seminar tomorrow, be ready to answer them, especially you know, in the back. All right, let's go. Oedipus Tyrannos, Oedipus the King. And I have to say, your question yesterday was very sophisticated about the fact that uh, Latin has the word Tyrannus in it and also Rex. 
and that a better translation of Oedipus Tyrannus from the Greek to the Latin would be Oedipus Tyrannos rather than Rex. I brought that up with third period. It looks like uh, it went right over their heads. All right. So, what's the setting? A plague has descended on Thebes, and her king, Oedipus, descends to the public to find out its cause. We don't yet know that he's an illegitimate king. We don't yet know the prophecy about him. We don't yet know anything about him. Though, on the Athenian stage, the Oedipus myth, like the Odysseus myth, everybody would have known about Oedipus. And so, the thing is, what Sophocles is doing here is taking a folk tale and refining it and making it even better. So, everybody knows this story. Everybody would have read the Odyssey. Everybody would have known about Epicaste or Yocasta in Hades. And so, again, one of the tragic elements of this play is the fact that everybody knows what the conclusion is going to be, but it will be how the plot unveils itself that leads to the dramatic irony or the tension of the drama. And so, this play starts very much like which epic that you have read, which also started with the plague, yes? The Iliad, yes, plagues. Apparently, when humans act in an immoral or unrighteous way, Apollo sends plague to them. What was it that caused him to send plague to the Achaeans so long ago, yes? Um, his priest's daughter. His priest's daughter, very good. Was taken by Agamemnon, and then Agamemnon refused to do what, and even insulted whom? Yes. He insulted the priest, and therefore who? Who he is the priest of? No. Yes. Apollo, right? He is the priest of Apollo, and uh, he insulted the priest of Apollo and refused to give back the priests daughter, even though the priest had ransom, and even though the Achaean people wanted him to give the priest's daughters back. He could have prevented all that conflict of the Iliad had he just made the right decision in the first case. So in any case, plagues often come about through unrighteous behavior. So something that we know to look for in this place is something immoral must have happened, something unjust, something against the will of the gods. So that's what's in the background. Something nasty has happened and is looming in the background. We do not know what. No, we do know what, but they don't. All right, and so Oedipus arrogantly presumes his own importance. In the first seven lines of the poem, we hear him say, I, whom all men call Oedipus the Great. He seems to have a very low opinion of himself or a high opinion of himself. And so one thing we know about tragic characters is they're often higher, nobler, better characters than we are, or people than we are, or lower, feebler, more vulgar characters than we are? Which one, A or B? A. A, they're usually better, higher. But the higher up a person is, the farther they have to what? To fall. And so we can already see foreshadowing working in this play. I, whom all men call great, we know it's a tragedy. What can you tell is going to be the outcome by the end of this play? He is not going to be thinking himself so great. People are not going to be calling him great by the end of these things. Is everybody feeling that tension in the air? It's like he's saying everything's good, but there's already a plague, so you already know that is everything good? No, something is rotten in the state of Denmark, Hamlet would say. Hamlet would say, or rather Shakespeare would say in introducing Hamlet. And so a priest of Zeus addresses Oedipus, and he tells of 
him. He tells that the people are turning to Athena. They're begging Athena for wisdom, insight into this situation. How can we fix this? How can we fix this? How can we fix this? And Oedipus, unlike Agamemnon, though in some ways like Agamemnon, does look for a solution here. And he says, we come to you, uh, or rather, we are trying to get rid of this terrible blight, and we come to you as a man, not as a god. Very interesting that we come to him as a man, not as a god. Let's keep moving. And so we get a short exposition of the exploits of Oedipus. It's like, what makes him such a great man? Why does he claim that all men call him great? Well, apparently, when he was first a traveler on his way to Crete, um, uh, we will find out that he ran into a certain particular person and had a little fight or skirmish. Not yet, though. One thing he did very famously is that outside of Crete, there was a sphinx. And the sphinx is a mythological chimeric creature that has the head of a woman and the paws and body of a lion. In fact, very famously, which place still has giant monuments called sphinxes? Egypt. Egypt. Very good. And so this sphinx sat at the gate of Crete so that nobody could get into the city. And it would ask a riddle. And if you failed to answer its riddle, it would eat you. And the riddle it asked was this. What goes on four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three in the evening? Oedipus was the only person capable of answering this riddle. And the answer is man. Man crawls on all fours as a child the morning of his existence, walks on two legs upright in the afternoon of his existence as a what? An adult, and then has a cane as a third leg in the evening when a man is what? Old. In the evening of his life, in the fall or the winter of his life. Very good. And so this priest comes to Oedipus and says, man, you got through this terrible mythological danger, very similar to uh, Odysseus. So, of course, Odysseus would come uh, later, mythologically speaking, though obviously uh, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey were written long before this was, uh, four centuries or so before, or composed, rather, because, of course, Homer sang it. And so, well, God must have aided you. And, well, it's better to rule a city full of men, not an empty one. And so save us one more time, Oedipus. And though this time, perhaps, he will have to save uh, Crete, not from a threat outside of themselves, but one that comes from within. Very similar to the idea of a plague, because obviously if you are plagued, what is it that is attacking you? Some disease that lies where? Within yourself. Very good. And so Oedipus arrogantly again calls the crowd children, again building this tension. It's him above the rest. He is great. He is the king. They are all children. He'll solve the problem. Hopefully, the problem isn't him. And yet, what is it that we all know? It truly is. All right. Here's a beautiful image from a vase of Oedipus, looking very thoughtful in front of a sphinx. Notice the sphinx doesn't have eyes. It's almost as if the sphinx is sort of an idea or a symbol for something, like the eternal problem of mankind, which perhaps why the answer to her riddle is what? Man. It's like, what do you think the cause of good and evil in the world is? And so, what is the big problem in the world for mankind? Ourselves and understanding ourselves. That's right. What bigger problem could there possibly be? Like, giraffes are pretty interesting, all not nearly as complex as us. Yes? Did the Sphinx give Oedipus any kind of hint about the riddle? 
Um, I don't, we don't get that information in this tale. We just know that there sort of was a riddle contest happening there. So I don't know whether it was extremely quick or whether it took him some time like uh, Bilbo and Gollum in The Hobbit. Good question, though. So Oedipus shares his plan. He says, okay, I have known about this sickness. So apparently he's been sitting on this issue for some time. Apparently he has not known what to do. And, but he claims that he is not caught as a man asleep. He is not unconscious of the situation. And claims that each sick person, oh, I love this claim, feels but one sickness, his own personal physical sickness. But that Oedipus as king feels the sickness of each citizen himself. And I mean, obviously it is, it is the case that when you're responsible for people and they're feeling pain, you empathize with them. But is, it, is that the same as actually being physically plagued? No, if you're sitting in front of me and, you know, snot's coming out of your nose and, you're, and you're just, your stomach is turning over and you feel terrible and I say, you feel pain, but me watching you be in pain is even more painful, would you believe me? Yeah. No, and that would not physically be more painful. That would be actually a bit of a rude thing for me to say. Um, I, I should say I'm grateful that I'm not feeling that pain. You say you better be. And so what has Oedipus done so far? He has sent a man, Creon. Creon will figure very prominently in the antiquity play. Um, Creon is the brother to Jocasta. Jocasta is the wife of Oedipus right now. She is the queen. And so Oedipus has sent a most trusted advisor and brother-in-law to the oracle at Delphi to get Apollo's perspective on why this plague has come. So Apollo needs to be asked, why have you plagued us? Why have you plagued us? And so what Apollo will do is he will send back a riddle to be unwoven. And since Oedipus has already proven his capacity to answer riddles through the riddle of the Sphinx, he's going to be the one that tries to take charge here. It's going to be Sherlock Oedipus uh, going through this play. And so, just as often happens in plays, there's a sense of motion, there's a sense of quickness. We hear that Creon has been sent away, and then immediately, who do we see coming towards us? Creon. We don't have time to wait. This isn't just some story where other things can happen. This is a play. There needs to be movement. It needs to be quick because it needs to be performed right in front of us. And so Creon approaches. He enters with news from the Pythian temple. So, excuse me, it was, uh, yes. It, that And the Pythian temple is called the Pythian temple because Apollo supposedly slayed a python there, a giant dragon snake as a god of light who attacked a snake very simple. Very interesting because there, there's some Christian prefiguration there. There is, of course, a, a god of light in the Christian tradition who in Revelation fights against the dragon, or at least the dragon is there present. Some suggest that that dragon is the dragon from which the snake in Genesis grew, very interestingly. In any case, Oedipus predicts good news from Creon's bright face. It looks like he's bringing back uh, information. Uh, it looks like he has something to say that will be helpful. And well, Creon's news is helpful, but it's not just good, it's good and bad. Why is it good? There's a solution to this problem. Why is it bad? Well, somebody is going to have to be exiled or blood will have to be spilled. Apparently there was a terrible crime, a crime worthy of exile or, or blood being spilled. That means that there has been a murder that has gone unavenged. Something we don't yet know from the body of the text is that the king, the former king before Oedipus, Laius, disappeared before Oedipus showed up, right before Oedipus showed up, curiously. But since the Sphinx was defeated, 
at such a similar time, nobody really raised their eyebrows at this correspondence, at this connection. Nobody inquired into it. And so nobody has really looked into the conditions under which Lias, the former king, has died, which is pretty ungrateful to the former king. That said, the crime is the death of the former king, and Oedipus begins to question Creon on the details. So, he asks, where did the murder happen? Here or in the country? We hear that it was out on an embassy away from home. And did anyone survive to tell the tale? So we're going to get more and more information here. Well, one person, one person survived, but he claimed that there were many robbers. This means that if, say, Oedipus is asking this guy about who killed Laius, and he in any way suspects himself, which he does not, he immediately can rule himself out, because when he traveled to Thebes, he traveled how? Alone. And so if many people killed this king, he truly does not know where and when this king was killed. He truly does not know that the one man that he met on the road so long ago was the king. He's totally unsuspecting. And so again, the tension continues to build. And so Oedipus asks, was this treachery? How could a robber kill a king? And well, Creon says, well, there was a sphinx. And we sought to deal with the riddling sphinx instead of a, the practical problem of the dead king. And so Oedipus says, how is it that you didn't look into this situation? How is it that you didn't ask whether he was betrayed treacherously? Um, and Creon said, we had more pressing problems to deal with. And so we couldn't figure everything out all at once. And so now we have to figure this out now because obviously we have a plague and it is a major issue. And so Oedipus responds, lines 140 to 142, whoever he was that killed the king, and you don't need to write the quotes, may readily wish to dispatch me with his murderous hand. So helping the dead king, I help myself. Indeed, indeed, perhaps he helps himself. Perhaps he helps his people at his own expense. Perhaps he is going to here be self-sacrificing without knowing that it is indeed himself who will be sacrificed. Let's keep moving. Only three more slides today, by the way. So Oedipus speaks for the gods. And again, you don't. I should have italicized this quote. You don't need to write it. You just need to write one, two, three. Come, children. Again, who is he referring to as children? His people, as if he is what them? Higher than they are, above them. Almost as if he is above his own fate, which he will certainly not be, because who is subject to fate in this world? All mortals. All mortals, all humans, and he certainly is one. Come, children, take your suppliant vows and go up from the altars now. Call the assembly and let it meet upon the understanding that I'll do everything. God will decide whether we prosper or, or remain in sorrow. I shouldn't say our, I should say or. Interesting. I'll do everything. It's almost like he's a sort of mother deity here, though very different from the perspective of Zeus. Was it the case that Zeus in the Odyssey would do everything for the mortals or have them do what they needed to do for themselves? He would have them do what they needed to do for themselves. He had Odysseus deal with the suitors, after all. He did not personally deal with the suitors, maintaining the pact between destiny and free will. Well, Oedipus seems to think that he's something more of a god here. He'll do everything for everyone. They don't need any agency. They don't need to act in any way themselves. Hmm. He's very, very, we would use this word in psychology, very inflated at this moment. And so is Oedipus suggesting that he will do what the gods have not? Ooh, a little bit of hubris there. 
Was he suggesting and saying, I'll do everything? That only he can help. And is this the hubris of the rational intellect? I want you to focus on that word hubris. It's a Greek word that means overweeningly arrogant. It means arrogant, so arrogant that you think that you are above or equal to the who? The gods. That's true arrogance right there. The word is hubris. All right, seven. The chorus speaks, finally. And so we get to see a strophe and antistrophe. The chorus moves as it speaks first one way. That's the strophe, like we were talking about. And then the chorus's turn of thoughts is then reflected in its motion through an antistrophe. That means the counter turn. And is often but not always concluded with the epode, the coming to the center. Well, the chorus calls for hope. Hope, why? Well, Oedipus is on the job. Once humans have decided to try and figure out a problem, well, is there any better hope you have for getting a solution than trying to figure out a problem? No, because are the giraffes going to figure out the problem for you? Certainly not. If somebody in this world is going to figure out the reason for a plague, it's going to be somebody with a rational intellect. It's going to be a human. And if you are focused on that problem, that is the best chance you have for, for uh, getting to a solution of it. And so first the chorus supplicates Athena, bring us wisdom. Then Artemis, bring us purity and chastity. And then Apollo, the so-called three averters of fate, the people that can change things from bad to good. And they say that this land is cursed, and deliver us, O golden daughter of Zeus, that means Athena. And then they beg Zeus, Apollo, Artemis, and even Dionysus for help against the terrible war god. They seem to think that Ares has in some way uh, plagued them, though obviously it will have been Apollo in a just way. One way to consider this plague here and to look at plagues in ancient myths is do plagues, are they physical embodiments of inner conflict or inner turmoil? For instance, the plague that afflicted the Achaeans came about at the same time that there was a division between Agamemnon and his people. He acted in a way that they disliked. And then there, was, there followed upon that consequently a division between him and his greatest fighter, and that could have led to a division between him and his destiny to, be, to defeat the Trojans had not Achilles come back, which was not due to his own savvy, but due to the will of Zeus. And so something I want you to think about is, do plagues come about because of internal conflict within characters and within societies themselves? You might even think about that in reality, too. Plagues often come about because uh, the conditions of a society become dirty, because there's some breakdown. Because corpses aren't putting away or filth isn't dealt with in the appropriate way. Do even real plagues sometimes break out because of a lack of internal coherency and consistency in a community? Something well worth thinking about, especially in a very rich society like ours that has plumbing, indoor plumbing. Keeps us from being super dirty and nasty all the time. Hmm. All right. Oedipus betrays his misunderstanding. First, he separates himself from the incident. He was a stranger here in Thebes before the murder happens, he says. Perhaps he's starting to feel a little bit of discomfort at this point. He's like, I've murdered somebody before. I wonder who it was. I didn't know. I didn't ask these questions. Uh, I'm probably still good, but mm, notice how that tension builds. And so by charitably, or and so by charitably, he will solve a riddle not his own, just as he thinks he did with the Sphinx. Again, he thinks he's separate from the situation. He thinks he's not a part of what's happening, even though it will turn out that he is the source 
of what is happening. It's sort of like when somebody first sets out to save the world and they want to expunge the evil in the world. Well, where is it do you think most people, every person, has to start if they want to get rid of evil in the world? With themselves, of course, with themselves. Very good. And so he commands the people to cast the murderer out of their homes if they know who he is. And then he says, so I stand forth a champion of the God. Again, another title. He is king. He is called great. He is champion of God. He has the highest possible ranks, so we know that he's going to have the longest possible what? Like Hephaestus. Downfall. And so he curses the, mis the murderer to misery and doom, which is interesting because he's actually cursing who? Himself. Himself. And so if he lives with my knowledge at my hearth, let me be cursed. And so you certainly will be, Oedipus, that's for sure. And if Oedipus is cursed, would this suggest that he did have knowledge? That question, not so useful. And the slide not as full of information as necessary, so if you don't finish it, it's okay. So he says, I now hold Laius's office and his wife. He is the new king. And this is a bit of a parody of a son or a prince ascending to the rank of king naturally, because obviously how he got to become king is that Laius was dead. He answered the question of the Sphinx, and he was given Laius' wife. Um, it's such a convoluted situation, though, because even though he is actually the son of the king, he did not come to become king in a natural way. It is not as if his father died naturally, and then he ascended to the throne. He has a stranger killed a stranger who happened to be a king, and so he attained his office by murder, unnaturally. Mm. And so Oedipus fights for his defense as for a father, and he curses those who do not obey him in his search. Again, throwing out curses, throw, looking for the enemy outside or inside. Outside. Outside. He's separate from the situation he thinks. He's separate. Those who do not obey me, may the gods grant no crops springing from the ground they plow, nor children to their women. That's a very sad thing he says there because something about um, Oedipus is all of his children will die, will die uh, because of him. Antiochus and Polynices will fight each other and they will strike each other down in the final moments of the battle for Thebes. Antigone will um, end up hanging herself. Um, and actually, I'll have to look up what happens to old Ismene, um, but I'm fairly certain that she dies as well. There is a curse on Oedipus, but I'll look that up to make sure that that's correct. All right, this is the last slide. Again, the sense of motion. If Creon comes and he says that he's heard something from the oracle, well, who's even better than Creon? Well, let's get an actual prophet. Who do we know to be the greatest prophet of the ancient mythological world who was dead in the Odyssey, which takes place after the Oedipus cycle? His name is? Tiresias, we get to see the blind prophet alive now. And he does basically the same thing he does when he's dead. And so he approaches, and he has not eyes, because he is what? He is blind. Well, he's blind to the things that normal people can see, but he has insight into that which others cannot see. It's like he's a very good mathematician or a predictor of, in this case, fortunes. And so Tiresias in his mind, he knows with what a plague our city is afflicted. And he is not happy to be here at all. Why? Well, because he claims his wisdom brings him no profit. And that just makes me ask these questions. And these are the questions I will leave you with today. Does this mean that the truth can hurt? That it is not always pleasant to learn the truth? And does this mean 
that his knowledge comes from the gate of ivory or the so-called gate of horn. Who remembers those two concepts? Yes? Gate of horn. Can you explain the difference between the gate of ivory and the gate of horn? So it says Penelope in book uh, 22 of the Odyssey. Yes? The gate of ivory is like a proven genius that is false. The gate of horn is like a true genius that is infinite. Very good. I think it's actually book 21 of the Odyssey. But yes, exactly. Gate of ivory, false but pleasant imaginings. Gate of horn, unpleasant but true uh, dreams. And so apparently Tiresias has been deriving his information from the gate of horn, which means his information is true, but also what? Painful. Painful. Very good. Very good. And in fact, the very first thing he asks to do is to just go home. He just wants to go home. He doesn't want to share what it is he knows because he knows that it's going to hurt someone, but it might save some people but it will extract a cost. All right, that is our introductory lecture to the first few hundred lines of Oedipus. More to come soon.